We have, don't we, a complicated relationship with the word fair. Is that fair? We have a complicated relationship with this word. Um, a lot of parents, it really gets on their nerves when kids utter this phrase. You know this one? Oh, but it's not fair. To which every parent in here has had the same response since time immemorial. And every parent says, life's not fair. Which I guess is meant to be comforting somehow. <laughs> But we have a complicated, here's what I mean, we have a complicated relationship with this. We all have a tendency to complain about, not just kids, all of us, we complain about things that are, we think are unfair, but here's what we do. We only tend to complain about things when they're unfair and the unfairness works against us. We do not uh, have a tendency to complain about things when it's unfair, but it's unfair to my advantage. Does that make sense? It seems like uh, when unfairness works to my advantage, I'm fine with that. So when something is not fair, when unfairness works against me, I call that an outrage. When unfairness works to my advantage, I call that answered prayer. Right? Everybody gets this. No kid, I mean, how do you respond when you get more than your fair share of something? Do you, do you turn it down? Of course not. Has any child ever said at a birthday party, it's not fair, it's not fair. Why not? What's wrong? Look at this cake. Look at this. Every other kid, I got more birthday cake than everybody else. I got too much cake. It's a travesty. Something must be done. Who, like, who says that? Right? Can you imagine two, uh, can you imagine two fellas talking after a football game? I tell you, it ain't right. Never get a holding call. I know. No, you don't understand. Our team never gets called. We hold every play, and we never get called, and I'm just not comfortable winning that way. It feels like we're cheating. No one's ever said that, right? In the history of the planet, right? Because when, no, it's always there. It's, 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 it's unfair in my favor. Your kids are never gonna be like, no, I got to ride up front last time. Somebody else should ride up front. It's not fair. I always get shotgun. Let me go to the back where it's miserable and hopeless, right? Do you understand? We don't outgrow that. We, now let's get a definition of fair. We might define fair as this. Let's say fair is getting what we deserve. But even knowing that, it's difficult to answer the question of what exactly we deserve, and by and large, we, we tend to gather our data on what we deserve by looking horizontally. We look at others, and from that we go, well, based on what other people are getting, th th that's how I determine what I deserve. You hear that in the way people talk. In very serious moments of life, they talk like this. Uh, uh, can you imagine uh, 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 somebody you hear about, and they're complaining about, they're going through a bitter divorce. Can you imagine? And they say, wasn't I a good wife? What did I do, wait for it, here it is, what did I do to deserve this? It's, it's a sense of fairness, and they're not, they're not being treated fairly in this. They didn't deserve this. They deserve better than this. Imagine someone who gets some terrible health news, and the, the, the report comes in, and, it, and it's cancerous, and he cries out to God, what, what, haven't I been a good man? Didn't, don't, don't I, what did I do to deserve this? We think in terms of fair, unfair, what, what do I deserve? And we answer this question based on, well, what, what do others get? But even the phrase, think about the phrase, are you getting your fair share, right? Now things get a little more complicated. One last word of introduction. Things even get a little more complicated if you're a Christian because here's how envy, envy by the way, envy is resenting God's goodness to somebody else. 
That's the definition of envy. And because if you're a Christian, envy is, is even more complicated because you don't actually resent the person. As a Christian, you believe that every good gift has come from God. So you're not actually mad at that person. Ultimately, if you're a Christian and you struggle with envy, you're actually angry at God. You're saying, God, they don't deserve that. Implication, but I do. <laughs> I deserve more. It's not fair. And that is exactly where you find, it's so comforting to know we are not the first followers of Jesus to struggle with this issue. And that's exactly where we find the apostle Peter. Remember in Matthew 19, they're still in this road trip to Jerusalem. They're heading from the north, they're heading south to Jerusalem where the disciples think Jesus is gonna be inaugurated as Messiah King. Oh, he is gonna be inaugurated as King, but his crown will be a crown of thrones and his throne will in fact be a Roman cross. They're not getting that yet, though he has told them plainly. And so we encountered last week, if you were here last week, do you remember the encounter with the rich young ruler? That's what sets up today's text. It's a question of fairness. And Peter is basically wondering if if Jesus is going to treat him fair. Here's how it goes down. Do you remember this? The rich young ruler. Remember last week? Rich young ruler, uh, uh, what do I have to do to, to inherit eternal life? Jesus names the commands, and the rich young ruler says, check, 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 I've done all this, what else do I still lack? And he realizes the real problem with the rich young ruler, his wealth had become his idol. And so he says, well, we gotta, we gotta not break the first commandment then. Go and sell everything you have. Your money's an idol. Sell everything you have. Give it to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. And the rich young ruler went away very sad because he was a man of great wealth. He kept all his money, but he lost the most important thing he could have had, a relationship with the Lord Jesus. Here's how Peter sums up that whole interaction. Of all the things he could ask, he sees all that, and this is Peter's thought. Huh, so this rich young ruler didn't wanna give up everything to follow you? And you promised that he would've had treasure if he did? But he says, look at, look at Matthew 19, verse 27. Here's how Peter summarizes that whole interaction. Peter looks around and does some math, and he says, Peter said in reply, see, we have. <laughs> the rich young ruler didn't wanna give everything up, but." We have, it's been years now since we sold our fishing business to come follow you. Like, like we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? You hear the question there. He's saying, Jesus, are you gonna treat us fair? Are you gonna do right by me, Lord? Now Jesus goes on to say basically, yes, Peter, you don't need to worry whether or not, whether or not God is gonna do right by you. Of course God's gonna do right by you. He says everyone who's given up in anything, he lists you know, uh, family and, and, and farms and, and children and, and left all, all this stuff for my sake, you won't be re- rewarded more a hundredfold, uh, he says. So don't you worry about that. But I think he, he's saying in verse 30, he says, but I'm not sure I like what, what's behind that question, Peter. I, I you know, I, I don't, I don't, it's like a warning. Um, don't be so quick to put yourselves ahead of people like the rich young ruler, Peter. Don't, don't be so quick to look down on the rich young ruler. Don't be so quick to crown yourself as first in line in heaven. Hey, we were the apostles. We're not like that rich young ruler. We're gonna be first. He's, he gives them a warning, a story, and then he says the warning again. He bookends this phrase, gives the warning, explains it with today's story, and then finishes it with this same phrase. He says this, but many, you know this one? Familiar verse, right? Many who are first will be last, and the last first. That's what we're gonna try to apply today to our life. I know how they applied this in the Baptist church that I grew up in. I grew up in a little country church way out in the county, a little Baptist church. And uh, this, I mean, it's like Jesus could have been talking to them. The best seats in every Baptist church, they know that, are on the very back row. And do you know, I once asked somebody about this and they told me, do you know how early we have to get here to get the seats the furthest back? They weren't kidding, right? And it's true, the very first get to be last 
And the very last, if you come in late in that little country church I grew up in, the last, guess where you got to sit, right? The very first. I'm glad that's not the way here. I'm glad you guys fight for those front rows. That's great, yeah. Jesus wasn't trying to apply it in that situation. Now, the best way to understand what he's talking about is to get this illustration. And, and that's what Jesus does. He, he tells a story. And, and if this story, I'm convinced, if this story will do its work on us, we will be convicted by the story. It's, it's one of my favorite stories, Matthew 20. We're going to start in verse 1. It, it, we will be convicted by it, but, but here's what. It's like we'll go under the laser focus, the surgical precision of the conviction of the Holy Spirit. This story will do that in, in the life of a believer. And, and I believe we'll be convicted, but we'll also be filled with a deeper understanding of his grace and his mercy. And that's my goal for what happens here today as we sit under this, uh, under this story. So let's dive right in. Many are first, will be last, and the last first. That's very, very complicated, hard to understand. So Jesus does so, so perfectly. He tells these parables, right? He tells these stories, and they start like this. For the kingdom of heaven is like... And you know, when the disciples heard this, they're like, all right, we're getting, one of, we're getting one of those Jesus stories. They're called parables, where he uses this to, as a way to teach what it's like in God's kingdom. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Uh, you can imagine, uh, particularly like a grape harvest, right? This is, this is serious business. You, you, the window is very short for that harvest. And so if you've had a bountiful harvest, you, you quickly realize you can't leave these things on the vine. The, the, the window's short. You're going to need help. And so he goes out looking for those day laborers, they, looking for where they gather, and they're looking for an honest day's work for an honest day's pay, right? Can you imagine a modern illustration? Honey, you've got to deal with this. It's, we're going to throw this party, and it's going to be next weekend, and everything's got to be perfect, and and. Southern Living Magazine is coming and they're going to take photos and the big problem you got is called kudzu. And it is, you know, this weed that has grown up everywhere and you start working on it a little bit and before too long you realize I'm going to need more help, right? And so this fella, he, he himself, think about it, he's got a foreman, he's the master of the house, he's the owner of everything. Hold this detail for later. He himself, he doesn't outsource this job, he himself goes out into the marketplace. So he goes to the home improvement store parking lot and he's looking for some, some contractors and some day laborers that are just standing around willing to get hired that day for an honest day's work, honest day's pay. And who does he find? Sure enough, he gets some labors. Verse 2, after agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. So he makes a contract with them. He makes, and, and he's got now an obligation. They have agreed to go work in his vineyard. He has agreed to pay them. What's he going to pay him? He's going to pay him a denarius. Now, a denarius was a unit of currency that was, it was tied to sort of, to sort of help against inflation. It was tied to one Day, one denarius was one day's work, and about four denarii in a week would be enough to sustain a family, right? And so your basic needs could be met with, with four denarii, and so roughly, the Bible, a lot of your footnotes will tell you that a denarius was a day's wage, and very often, that, that's exactly what happened. A day was defined as 12 hours in an agrarian society. You had these farmers that would start at 6 a.m. They would end at 6 p.m. And if you work those 12 hours, you could expect a denarius, and quite often you would take that denarius that very day, and you would go and you would, um, you would uh, buy what you needed uh, for that day's uh, sustenance, right? So you might go and you would literally put food uh, on your family's table uh, right there and right, right then, um, so that's what he agrees with, and if, if the cost of food and shelter and clothing went up, the value of a denarius would go up with it, uh, and so he's, he's got these guys. That's, I just want you, all I'm trying to get you to see is that it is an agreement. 
It is a legally binding agreement. They are now contractually obligated, um, both parties, okay? Well, it gets to be about 9 a.m., or what the Bible calls the third hour, about 9 a.m., and he realizes, whew, it's, it's, it's going to be close. He needs some more tools, some more supplies, whatever. So he goes out again, and uh, uh, verse 3, he goes out about the third hour, and he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and this time he doesn't make a, a, a contractually, you know, obligatory uh, agreement. Instead, he just says, uh, I'll, I'll do right by you. Here's how he puts it. You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I'll give you. So they went. So he's not entirely sure how he missed these guys on the first trip uh, to Lowe's, but uh, he, you know, he's, he's back there, and, and now he sees them, and they've been idle. And so, okay, wh- whatever. You, you just go work too. I, c- I could use the help. You, you go, um, and I'll, I'll just give you, uh, well, there's no even indication that he could use the help. He's just saying, you go to the vineyard, and I'll do right by you. So they went. Now notice the process continues. Jesus continues with the story. Going out again about the sixth hour, so that's about noon, and the ninth hour, I imagine about noon he goes out to get lunch uh, for all his, his workers, and as he's going out to get lunch, he notices that there's even more, sends them out. There's no, no real indication of any kind of arrangement made, and he goes out again at 3 p.m., that's the ninth hour, goes out again, did the same thing. In verse six, y'all, we get to 5 p.m. Think about this, quitting time is six o'clock. And they they call this the 11th hour, right, on a 12-hour workday. So here we are at 5 p.m. Quitting time is is an hour away, and he goes out and found others standing. Now, how on earth are these guys still out there in the marketplace? He asked them that very question. He said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, "Uh, because no one has hired us. Now, Jesus doesn't give us any detail about whether or not the landowner thought this was true. Maybe, maybe somebody passed you up and just didn't notice you for 11 hours out of the 12-hour workday. Uh, it, it could be that the employment situation is such that there is such a low demand for labor that uh, uh, there were just laws of supply and demand and you didn't get hired. Or it could be that they were, you know, idle. He does say you're standing there idle. It could be they were lazy, you know, they may have slept in till the sixth hour or the ninth hour, and, or, or maybe they did the kind of work that nobody really wanted to hire them for their work in the vineyard. But who knows, in an incredible act of generosity and compassion, he says something unthinkable. He said to them, uh, you go into the vineyard too. Now here, there's no agreement, there's no implied agreement. He doesn't say he's gonna, uh, gonna pay him anything. I mean, he, he Maybe payment was assumed, maybe not. But I think about, like, literally the sun's going down. By the time these 11th hour workers even get to the job site, it's going to take them time to even get there. I imagine they get there, like, just in time to help maybe put one tool away, right? I mean, what's left to do? They could theoretically have been paid. There is, a, there is a twelfth of a denarius. It was called a pondion. The pondion was a, was a currency that was one twelfth of a denarius so that you could break up the day this way. And theoretically, they, I don't know what they would have done with uh, this pondion, but, but the guys aren't even promised that. They're promised nothing. And I imagine they get there just in time to they see these guys that have been sweating all day. And, and some of these guys have at least been sweating, you know, half a day. And they get out there just to sort of, uh, you guys, uh, you know, you need, need help with anything? You got that? Okay, right. You know, they must have been asked, what are you even, what are you even doing here? But then uh, payday comes. Now, it is interesting that uh, uh, they're, they're paid that day. They really are day laborers, and they get a day's wage. Before there was the Department of Labor, and before there was all these institutions to help make sure these workers were treated fairly, there was God's law. 
And in God's law, it says if you're going to hire these day laborers, uh, you have to pay them that day because they need, they're relying on that income to feed their family. And so you're literally going to cheat them out of a meal if you say, well, for my cash flow, I'm going to withhold it or whatever. So it's God's heart in the Torah uh, to protect and to put these protections in. And so it's not surprising in verse 8 that they're lining up to get paid. So verse 8, when evening came, here we are, 6 o'clock, quitting time. The owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, see, that's what I mean. He's got a foreman. He's got managers. It's interesting that he himself goes out looking for these laborers. Anyway, he said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages. Now, at this point in the story, everything culturally and conceptually makes sense to the listeners. All of this makes sense. It's right here that the story takes a wild right turn. Call the laborers and pay them their wages. But the owner has something up his sleeve. So he says this, but do it this way. He tells his foreman. Foreman's got his books open. He's got the, the, the money bag there. He's ready to dispense all the denarii and all the pondions and everything else. He says, here's what I want you to do. Begin with the last up to the first. Now, there's no reason why you should pay the 11th hour guys. I mean, you know, but he says, no, 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 I want you to do it this way. So, okay, all you, all, you, all you guys that just got here, the 5 p.m. folks, you line up first. You see him kind of shuffle up to the front. They're like, we, did, we didn't even break a sweat. We're not, you know, the guys in the back going, well, I don't see why they should get paid first. We've already been here in the heat of the day. And now just to get our pay, we're having to wait longer. So I imagine they're, they're not too happy about that, but whatever. It's, you know, what can you do? But then, but then, then they're shocked by verse nine. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, you're not gonna believe this. They didn't get a pondion. They didn't get two or three pondions. Each of them received a full denarius. They all, got a, they all got a denarius. Can you imagine? They're shocked. I always imagine the 11th hour guy's like, uh, you, you sure this is right? You know, they can't believe it. Well, the next verse goes without saying. Apparently, uh, so word travels to the back of the line quickly, <laughs> right? Dude, did you hear? Is that, they're like walking back like, <laughs> for doing nothing, right? And they make their way back. And you know the guys that have been sweating all day are like, hold up. If that's what he gives those guys, if that's what they earn for doing nothing, imagine what he's going to give us. And so they're getting closer and closer, and they're just drenched in sweat. They're drenched in mud. They're like, oh, it's going to be good. Here we go. Now, when those, verse 10, hired first came, they thought they would receive more, which is exactly what we would have thought. It's what everybody would have thought. It's exactly why the story is so convicting. Jesus is showing us something about how our minds work. And here they go. They get to the front, and what do they get? a subscription to the Jelly of the Month Club, they get, but each of them also received a denarius. What? Verse 11, and on receiving it, and this is a great understatement, they grumbled. I bet they did. They grumbled at the master of the house, saying, by the way, exactly what we would have said. These last worked only one hour, worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us. Us, we who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. Do you hear what is implied here? It's not fair. You've made them equal to us. That ain't right. That's, that's not, we, we've been out here all day, we're, and by the way, it's burning hot out here, and we have borne the burden of all this work. How dare you give them, you've made them equal to us. It's not fair. Remember what I said the definition of fair was, and I think we all 
Kind of agreed, surely. Fair is getting what you deserve. Let me ask you a question. Technically, were they being treated unfairly? What wrong was perpetrated? Is it fair? The owner, I mean, the owner's logic is irrefutable. Look at verse 13. But he replied to one of them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. That's really true, isn't it? Didn't they have a contractual obligation? You're happy. They were thrilled that you, you get a job today. That's great. That's what they wanted. You get a job, and, and, and for that job, you get one denarius. They did the job. They got their one denarius. So he asked him, wasn't that our agreement? Now, if I had broken the agreement, if I gave you less or something like that, you would have a case, but you literally got what you signed up for. And, and that's what he says. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. Several commentators point out the Greek here is actually take up, pick up, implying that in verse 10, when they received the money, what did they do with it? They threw it on the ground. I don't even, I don't even want you to know. This is so, this is terrible. This is unfair. And it's almost like the landowner saying, what the, no, 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 friend, there's no need for all that. Take it up, pick it up. Didn't, isn't this what we disagree? I mean, isn't this what we agreed with? Well, He continues with some rhetorical questions and a little reminder of who sets the terms around here. He says, see, I choose to give, I choose, my choice, my decision, I, remember master of the house? I choose, it's my land, it's my vineyard. Over and over in the Old Testament, the owner of the vineyard is compared to God and the children of Israel like the laborers. That's why the grumbling reminds us of the grumbling in the wilderness as Moses is leading the people through the wilderness and they're grumbling against, ultimately not Moses, they're grumbling against God. And God's saying, don't I own all these things? The landowner says, it's my, it's my denarii, okay? I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed, ooh, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Can the, can the clay vessel say to the potter, you don't have a right to fashion me like this. I don't deserve to be an ashtray. I need to be a fancy vase. No, a vase. Even more fancy, right? No, the, the potter has the right over the clay. Who, who's in control here? Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or is there something more going on? Is there something under the surface? In the end of verse 15, he hits on what's really going on. Or do you begrudge my generosity? There it is. The Greek literally is, do you have an evil eye toward the goodness of God? That's the heart of the matter. Are you jealous? See, you can't be happy when you see God being more generous to others, can you? Isn't that how envy works? The, the, listen. They worked for denarius, they got a denarius. They're mad because everybody else got a denarius that they didn't earn. If they had gotten a pandion, they would have been happy. But I ask you, how does that change their denarius? They're not any wealthier. That's what envy does. Envy gets you to a point where you will resent the goodness that God is pouring out on somebody else and you will utterly miss the goodness that he's pouring out on you. That's what he's trying to tell Peter. So, so, Peter... (laughs) In answer to your question, will I do right by you? Of course. You see verse 16? Of course. 
I will. But I'm a little concerned where that train of thought is leading. And so Jesus gives his cryptic conclusion, which is the mirror of what he said in the beginning of the story. The last will be first and the first last. He starts with the first shall be last and the last first. And he ends with the last will be first and the first last. Now remember, this whole thing is an answer to Peter's question. Hey, that rich young ruler, he didn't want to give up his riches to to follow you on your final march to Jerusalem, but but we did. We're sacrificing so much. We've given up everything. Are you going to do right? Jesus is saying, yes, but there is a hidden danger in your question. I'm a little concerned that you're starting to think like you earned your place on this team, Peter. You hear what's behind that question? Hey, listen, Peter, and to all the disciples, and really to all of us, it's like this parable saying, hey, whoa, whoa. If you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus, you didn't go marching into his field. He himself came and found you. You see how that's different, right? Your ego, ego, you know ego, E-G-O, easing God out, (laughs) Your ego puts you in a position where you're like, no, 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 I earned my place. Whoa, now, Peter, did you come looking for me or did I come to your place of business? Remember back in Luke 5, Peter? Remember when I came to you and you were fishing, I said, come follow me and I will make you to become fishers of men. Remember how this worked, Peter? Remember when I saw Matthew? Matthew didn't say, hey, please, oh, please, oh, please let me follow you. I went to him in the tax collector booth and I said, follow me. The owner of the house goes out looking for that laborers. Everybody understand my point? If you are here and you are a Christian, you didn't get here on your own. He found you. He sought you. He bought you with the precious blood. See? So that, 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 that's where we got to start. So Peter, don't, don't, don't be crowning yourself. I'm going to be first in heaven. I did so much more than this rich young ruler and all these other people. I've given up everything. No, oh, Peter. It's like he's like, Peter, <laughs> there's going to be a lot of people who are added to my kingdom. And that, that's really true. If you think about the disciples, there's a lot of people that have come to faith after the disciples. And he's telling those disciples, hey, now, uh, <laughs> There's going to be some people who are going to join up in the, you know what a bandwagon fan is? A bandwagon fan means like when when the team's going great, everybody suddenly wants to cheer for this team. And when they're doing terrible, everybody jumps off. Jesus is saying a lot of times people who are like the OG fans of a certain team, they're going to be like, well, I don't don't want these bandwagon fair weather fans. He's like, whoa, 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 hold up now. Uh, As we're marching to Jerusalem, you, you need to understand something. There's going to be people who, quite frankly, you're going to think don't have a right to follow me. Peter, we've already met some tax collectors. We've met some Gentiles that are gonna follow me. And I don't think you're too happy with that, are you? And, oh, oh, and we're gonna meet some people. Well, they're born a very poor. Some people in the ancient Near East, they're, they're gonna be born slaves. They're, they're gonna, they're not, you're gonna think that they, they're, they're the last of this world. And I'm telling you, you're gonna be first in line to follow me. In fact, you know the, 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 the most famous example of this all? I mean, I mean, he's looking at Peter going, there's gonna be some undesirable people who are gonna follow me. I'm gonna go get them. I'm gonna welcome them in. And you just need to remember, the first will be last, the last will be first. There, quite frankly, there are some people, even today, there are some people the Lord Jesus is gonna save who, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, they're, they are downright ugly acting. They can just be downright ugly in their behavior. And you know what Jesus does? <sighs> Saves them. Can you imagine, right? I mean, don't they have to do a little something, don't they? You know the biggest example of this? The most famous? We still nickname this, this guy. Is still, he gets a nickname that he's gonna have for all eternity, right? The, the, most, the, the most famous last-minute conversion in the history of the church. Do you know the most famous last-minute conversion? Thief on the cross. Remember him? 
So here he is, a murderer, insurrectionist, totally opposed to all the things in the commandments of God. There he is hanging on the cross and looks at Jesus and say, well, looks at the thief and says, we deserve what we're getting. He doesn't. And he looks at Jesus and says, I'll ask today, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus looks at him and says, today you'll be with me in paradise. I'm going to I'm gonna, I'm gonna save one more, right? Can you imagine? Peter's going, so, so he has exactly zero days of Christian service. He has exactly zero righteousness points. And there he is. Can you imagine for all eternity? Can you, have you thought about what it's going to be like when you meet the thief on the cross? You'll know him a mile away in the new heaven, new earth. He's the guy who will not stop talking. I know, right? I know. I'm just as shocked as everybody. <laughs> I can't, be, can you believe I'm here? Seriously, can you believe I'm here? No matter what any of you have done, you did more than me. Like, can you believe I'm here? My prayer would be that after you understand this parable, you'd be able to say to the thief on the cross when you meet him in glory, same here, bro. Can you believe I'm here? I needed grace just as much as you. Not a single one of us earned our ticket here. Does that make sense? That's what he's saying. So, so here's what I wanted to do. If you're not careful, you will... Okay, we've got to draw some applications here as we close. So I'll give you three application points if you're a note taker. If you're not careful, over time, you will resent God's goodness to others. And that's called envy. Peter had to learn that. In fact, l- later in, uh, in John 21, I'm not sure, I think Peter struggled with this his whole life. After the resurrection, when Jesus says, Peter, come follow me, the first words out of his mouth in John 21, he says, he looked at John, he goes, Lord, what about him? So Peter always struggled with this, and I think Jesus wanted Peter to get the same thing he wants us to get this morning. Here's application number one, if you want to write this down. Isn't this true? Comparison is a joy thief. Comparison is a joy thief. It's true, isn't it? The workers were so happy just to get a job that day, happy to get a denarius, and yet that joy turned sour. How? Answer, comparison. It was when they were looking horizontally at what others got. Regarding this parable, John Claypool has a great quote, as long as the workers stayed focused on what had been given them, their experience was one of incredible joy. However, what had first been the occasion of great celebration turned into something very different because they gave way to the sidelong glance of envy. They began to compare what they had to what others had rather than to what they had at the beginning. And it turned their joy into curdled bitterness. That's why I picked that quote. How great is that? Your joy has become, envy can turn your joy into curdled bitterness. Not just bitterness, but curdled bitterness. That's what envy, how many of you would drink coffee that had curdled bitterness in it, right? No, it's gross, right? That's what envy does to a human heart. Turns joy into curdled bitterness. A fail-safe recipe for joy is regarding one's life as a gift. A fail-safe recipe for misery is comparing oneself to someone else and forgetting what a grace life really is. Isn't that human nature? Isn't that true? If we could count our blessings, we would see everything as a gift. Grace is everywhere, but we learn even as little children, comparison, you can steal joy. I, I can do it. I, you can try it if you want. I can do a magic trick. It's an illusion. Um, I can take a donut, which let's be honest, a donut is a circular fried disc of joy. I can turn that little, that little disc of joy into curdled bitterness. You can, uh, I'll, I'll teach you how to do the trick. Um, so uh, my kids love donuts. Okay, so step one is have three children. 
Okay, once you've done that, you've got three children. Then what you do is unexpected and unannounced. This is a no donut day. This isn't like a special, hey, we're getting a donut day that they expect. It has to be a completely unearned special grace donut day. The, the donuts are grace-filled and jelly-filled, whatever. They're, they're, they're wonderful. And uh, you give each child one donut and surprise them with this act of grace and generosity. Now the donut is joy. Here is, without touching the donut, I can do this, and this is the magic part because I don't even have to touch the donut, but I can take one child and turn their donut of joy into curdled bitterness, and here's how. Without touching their donut, you don't need to touch theirs. Uh, let's say the middle child. Uh, instead of, uh, 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 then here's all you do. You get two more donuts, and you bless the two other children with a second donut. Ta-da! Your donut is now curdled bitterness, right? And you can try this at home with your kids if you're heartless and a borderline sociopath. And you, right? That's crazy. Like, who does that? Who, what human would ever do that? The answer is no one. Why? But that, did you, when did you, my question is, when did you outgrow that? When did you outgrow that? You were perfectly fine with your car until you looked at what other, you could take somebody who's rich, take somebody who makes $200,000 a year, you can make them miserable. How? Just put them in a neighborhood where everyone else makes $300,000 a year. What happened? Your joy became curdled bitterness. Some of you were just, do you remember the day you were so happy just to have a job? And now what? Comparison. It's a joy thief. You were so happy to, 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 to have this kid and they were doing all the things, but then you look around at what other kids are doing and you're, and you're well, they're falling behind and I'm not, doing, I'm not this and they don't have that. And comparison is a joy thief. Some of you, you lived in a home. The home you live in is so well appointed and it's so comfortable and it's just what you and your family need and it's perfect, but what happened? Pinterest, that's what. And Pinterest, which was supposed to be this like sweet way to share like recipes and craft ideas and ideas for crazy hat day on VBS, became a, a wicked den of iniquity in comparison where you took people who had perfectly happy homes and they're now miserable because they don't have shiplap <laughs> or whatever, right? Now Tom, are you, you hating on Pinterest? No, no, don't misunderstand me, no. I'm not against social media, but I do, social media can do so much good for so many people. There's so many ways we can connect in ways we never could. You can even use social media to share the gospel, but so many times social media is nothing more than a, a, a satanic, I don't want to overstate it, a satanic online comparison of impossibly attainable lives, a satanic online comparison of impossibly attainable lives. That's all I'm saying it is. A satanic online comparison of impossibly attainable lives. S-O-C-I-A-L. Social. It's a satanic online comparison of impossibly attainable lives. See, are you saying, are you saying delete all my social media apps? No. Y yes. N maybe. No, I don't want to be legalistic. And so no, I wouldn't say that. But can I at least suggest this? Put on the full armor of God before you go into these realms because comparison is still a joy thief. And here's the second application, and this is, this is gonna help you. Here, here's why. I'm, I'm, I am halfway kidding about the social media stuff, and here's why. I, I do think it can be used for good. I also think we need to be very aware of comparison, but it's not a legalistic thing you can do to solve this. It's gotta be a heart change. And at the heart level, I would make this the second application. We probably just need to come clean and admit there is a sense in which grace is unfair. It just is. Grace, in a sense, is unfair. Let, let me explain. 
do not misunderstand me. I'm not saying God is unfair. God is just. God is perfectly fair. But if, it, there's a sense in which if a wage is something you earn and grace is a free gift, so then something that was not in fact earned is now being given as grace. That, that's what grace is. It's, it, it's not getting what you deserve. Now, again, God is fair. Remember the scene in the vineyard when he says, friend, am I being unfair to you? No, he's absolutely not. It, in heaven's courtroom, when God the judge puts his gavel down, every head in the courtroom goes, yes, that is correct. That is right. Okay, of course, he is perfectly fair. Make no mistake. By the way, in this parable, did you notice? No one in this parable received less than they, um, than they were promised. No one received less than they deserved. The, the unfair sense of grace is that some people received far more than they deserved. But grace is by definition just that, not getting what you deserve. It's getting more. And that's why I think it's better if we just admit, if we're going to walk under law or we're going to walk under grace, you just have to admit, grace is going to, in a sense, be like unfair. Grace doesn't get broken up into pondions. Grace is just the full love of God poured out on sinners. So try this one. Say you work at a privately held company, and the CEO of your company announces that this year, They'll announce it in the fourth quarter, but whichever salesperson achieves the highest total sales this year, the CEO is giving uh, two tickets, all expenses paid, trip to Hawaii. And so you can't believe it. The year starts, you've got goals, and you go after it, and you bust it, and you really are trying. And, And in first quarter, it looks like you're neck and neck with a couple other salespeople. And second quarter, it looks like you pulled away. Third quarter was tough, but at fourth quarter, it looks like it's going to be close, but you think you're there. And at the office Christmas party, they unveil it. And you're like, oh man, it's going to be closed. I mean, all expense paid trip to Hawaii. This is incredible. And plus the accolades and the, oh, it's going to be closed. And they announce it. And when they announce, sure enough, you got it. It's you, all expense paid trip to Hawaii. And you, oh, I can't believe it. you're so excited. You pick up your phone as you're, uh, I, you know, you're, you're walking out. You get hugs and congratulations. You can't wait. You, you know, you, you call your wife. Oh, it, 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 I know, I know it happened. Yes, yes, I got it. I can't believe it, right? And as you're walking out, making this call, you overhear the CEO say to everyone else, but you know what? We've had such a banner year here at the company. I'm going to do something outrageous. I'm actually sending all the salespeople on a free trip to Hawaii. You're going to Hawaii, and you're going to Hawaii. You're all going to Hawaii. How many of you, your first reaction would be, how generous and wonderful is the CEO of this company? I always knew he was good and filled with grace. But to give all of them a trip to Hawaii that they didn't earn just shows more and more of his grace. Is that your reaction? Of course not. Honey, hold on. I'm going to call you back. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Get some bail money. I, like, what? Excuse me? Can you not imagine taking those tickets to Hawaii and just ripping them up? No, I don't even want to go now. How dare you? And what are you so mad about? Did you get, were you done wrong? You, if you won the thing, you got it. You got exactly what you contractually agreed for. But that's not the point. What is the point? You've made all of them equal to me. That's the point. You've, 
I've been out here working so hard. I've, I've been in the born, the, the heat and the scorching heat of the year during all these quarters of sales. And you've made them equal to me. And that's not fair, friend. Am I being unfair to you? There's no need for all this. Can't you imagine the boss saying, pick up, it's, it's a privately held company. I don't answer to any shareholders. It's my money. It's my trips to Hawaii. Now, there's no need for this. Take these tickets. Aloha. And you're like, Aloha. I don't, I don't even want to go anymore. Do you understand this? So here we go. Technically, you're mad because you don't like that they've been made equal to you. Hey, the scariest part of this parable, and several commentators point this out, the most frightening part of all this is how deep down, admit it, just how much we agree with those last hour workers. That's what's so convicting. This passage still, after all these years, has teeth to it. We agree with that salesperson who won the Hawaii trip. We can't help it. We see their point. We side with them, which, of course, means siding with the opponents of Jesus. And it reveals just how loveless and unmerciful we still are. We have a long way to go in our sanctification. We may be more, everybody says, I'm not a legalist, I'm not under the law, but we may be more under the law and less under grace than we realize when we can't celebrate his goodness poured out on others. Deep down, this is what I came to tell you. When I prayed for you, as I was preparing this message, I prayed for you that God would grant you vulnerability because it takes vulnerability to admit the following. If deep down, there's this simple thought in this parable, deep down, when it comes to my place in the kingdom of heaven, okay, I earned it, and they didn't. I earned my right standing with God, and they didn't. And if you can get that vulnerable this morning, if you can admit that even though everything in your brain says, no, 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 that's wrong, that's not true, deep down, that's why we still side with those first hour workers. Then the parable has done what it's exactly what it's supposed to do. It exposes us, it convicts us, and it offers us this gospel grace. This is the most important thing. This is the final application. If you can say, well, I, I earned it deep down. I still can't let go of the fact that you've made other people equal to me. I've earned my place in the kingdom of heaven. I've been out here working. Here it is. Here's the last application. This, and it's the point of the parable. The point of the parable is not, okay, all you first hour workers who earned your wage, don't look down upon those who get added later. No, the application number three is this. Who? Who among us? Who's a first hour worker? I think a lot of people misunderstand this parable. And they think it goes like this. They think it's like, hey, those of you who've been working for the Lord your whole life and you've earned your way to heaven, don't be too harsh on those last hour people who just slip in like the thief on the cross. Oh, no, no, no. No, that's not the point. It's not, hey, those of you who've really earned your way with God. No. Who of us is a first hour worker? Do you remember what happened with the first hour workers? They struck a bargain. We'll work all day and we'll earn that denarius. Who of you, can I ask you, who of you have ever struck a bargain with God? Okay, God, I'll give you a lifetime of righteous works in exchange for eternal life with God and heaven. Who of us made that deal? It all comes down to where you see yourself in the parable. If you see yourself as having struck a bargain with God, like you had something to bargain with, a life of obedience, but if you feel like you've fulfilled your contract, you will always begrudge those who don't seem to pull their weight, and most of all, you'll begrudge God when pain and sorrow come into your life because you'll say, this was not our bargain. 
I may not be perfect, but I've lived a good life. And because I've lived a good life, I've earned it. I'm a first hour worker and you're not giving me my denarius. Meanwhile, you're paying denarius out to other people. I deserve better than this. If that's how you see yourself. But if you see yourself as not a first hour worker, if you would say, I'm an 11th hour worker, I'm like the thief on the cross, you won't begrudge anyone anything. You'll see your whole life as a gift. The point of the story is God dispenses gifts, not wages. None of us gets paid according to merit because none of us come close to satisfying God's requirements for a perfect life. If paid on the basis of fairness, we would end up separated from God in hell. So Peter says, well, we've given up everything. Are you going to do right by us? And it's like, like, no, Peter, you're saying you're a first-hour worker. You've given up everything. But that's the point, Peter. You didn't give up everything. When Jesus needed you most, what did you do? You denied him just when he needed you most. That's the point. You didn't, you're not a first-hour worker. You need grace like everybody else. Every, at, at best, the saint who has served the Lord the longest at First Baptist, the most mature Christian you know, is at best a sixth-hour worker, maybe third but none of us are a first hour worker. And when you realize that, when you say, wait, 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 I need his grace. And some of you, if you're honest, you're like, well, when you ask it like that, I'm like an 11th hour worker. I think I've been, I've been 30 minutes. <laughs> I'm like a 30 second worker <laughs> in the kingdom of God. I don't deserve his goodness. I don't deserve eternal life. Now you've got it. You say, well, I'll, I need his grace. That's right. And you won't begrudge grace to anybody because you'll realize I need it more than anyone else. Brandon's gonna come and lead us in a time of response and invitation. And my hope was that this parable would allow a little, a little conviction where the grace of God could go deep into our life. And we'd be convicted to say, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm not a first hour worker. And if you're here and, and you would say, I'm not yet even a believer, that you would come and be saved. If, if you're someone who's been walking with the Lord for a while, I, I, want, I want grace to fill your heart. Maybe you need to, to kneel and, 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 and confess uh, bitterness uh, toward others and, and envy. And it could be you'd say, well, I, you know, and, and that's like Discover First today. I'm going to mention this at Discover First. If you say, well, I, I don't know what people think. I've been coming a long time and I'm just now joining. Or what will people think? I was... Sprinkled as a little baby. And now to join First Baptist, I understand a biblical, you know, your understanding of the Bible's definition is believer's baptism. Be baptized as an adult. What will people think? Won't they? I don't want people to think like I'm just now, you know. Who of us is a first hour worker? I'm here by grace. You're here by grace. That's why judging other people, it makes no sense. The only one who could judge would be like a first-hour worker. And listen to me. There has never been a first-hour worker. Well, actually, there was one, wasn't there? There was one. There has been one full-day worker. There is one who earned that full pay. Jesus, the Son of God, you might say, is the only first-hour laborer. And Jesus, the very Son of God, he earned through his life of obedience. You've heard fair days, uh, uh, honest days work, honest days pay. He lived the honest day's life of a lifetime of obedience and earned a perfect standing with God the Father. There is one who actually, on his own merit, on the wages of how he lived his life, 
earned eternal life with God. And do you know what God did with that perfect obedience? Do you know what God did with the Son of God, Jesus Christ? He made us equal to him. He gave each of us, late hour workers, exactly what belongs to the one true full day laborer. He made us equal to Christ. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus really did earn a right standing with God and he offers that freely. And God dispenses to us grace, not wages. Let's receive it and splash it out on everybody we meet. Let's pray. God, I pray that uh, you could flush envy out of our system with the only thing that can, that you would drive the gospel good news, drive your good news of what you did for us in sending Jesus on the cross and the only begotten son paying for us in our salvation. Drive that so deep into our heart that envy has no room left and must leave. Oh God, grant that just in greater and greater measure we walk under grace and we live under grace and we treat other people with that same grace. Grant that to us, Lord. Don't let comparison steal any more joy. Grant us more and more of an understanding of your amazing grace. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.